Good morning. I wish I could say it's good to see you, but good morning. And I love that song. That song that we just sang, Waymaker, that is an excellent theme song for the book of Esther. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Esther's called the scroll, Megala, but it's a book that really captures the work of God, and yet we don't see him working, but we see the evidence of his work. When I asked TJ about singing this song as a lead into the book of Esther, I had that, those very words in mind. TJ told me that's called the bridge. And I think that's perfect because that is the perfect bridge for such a time as this. That's the perfect bridge over troubled waters. Even when I don't see you, you're working. That's the theme of Esther. And the book of Esther teaches us to be mindful and alert to the presence of God, to rely on God, not only in the bright dawn, but also in the dark night of life. It's crucial that we believe this, that we are mindful and alert to the presence of God, to rely on God, in all things, all circumstances, at all times. That's a tall order, but it helps to realize God is present. And it's a great assurance, not just the fact, but the assurance that God is supervising and administrating the events in our world, our nation, our state, even in our lives. This assurance should be a part of our prayers, a part of our praise, a part of our pleas. Have you heard of the word providence? Have you heard the words, the providence of God? The word providence does not occur in the Bible, but its meaning is there. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover, tells us the world and humanity are not ruled by chance nor by fate, but by God, who directs history and creation toward an ultimate goal. Our word providence refers to God's superintending activity over human actions and human history, bringing creation to God's divinely determined goal. The Bible is the book of God's providence, leading history to its fulfillment in two parts, two testaments, one on the heels of the other, one in fulfillment of the other. The second 
part, the New Testament displays God's providential fulfillment of his plan in Jesus, the Christ, the awaited Messiah. In him, God's plan is revealed. If you have your Bible and you can turn quickly, turn to Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. I'm going to start at verse 7. Excuse me. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's all-encompassing the work of Christ. The book of Esther takes us back to a stage in God's providence, almost 500 years before Christ, when God's plan, his testament, his covenant with his people was in jeopardy. The very existence of his covenant people was at risk of being wiped out. If God's people should perish, the plan of God, his promise to Abraham, a promise that was passed to his son Isaac, and the promise passed to his son Jacob and his sons, that would all be broken. So I want us to look at Esther and realize this is a stage and an example of the providence of God at a time that the covenant was at risk. That's very important. And I want to walk us through the story of Esther. The first half of the book of Esther opens with a feast and lays out problem after problem for Esther and Mordecai. The second half of the book of Esther resolves those problems in reverse order, and the book ends with the Jewish feast of Purim being instigated or instituted to commemorate what God has done. In chapters 1 and 2, we meet the king, Akashverosh. That's the way it's pronounced in Hebrew. It's kind of a tongue twister. So we'll just use the Persian name for the king, Xerxes. In the third year of his reign, the story begins. He reigns over 
the Persian Empire, which stretches all the way from India to Ethiopia. Two feasts or banquets follow right on the heels of the other. There are 10 banquets in all. The first entertains all the nobles of the empire for 180 days. We think it has been thrown, even though it's the third year of his reign, to commemorate his inauguration as the king over the empire. It probably took three years to get ready, but it lasts for 180 days, and it's an extravagant display of wealth and power. The second feast is a seven-day feast that is celebrated right in the capital city of Susa. It's for the locals and all of the local nobles. On the last day of that feast, Xerxes, after much drinking, we're told, he wants Vashti, his wife, the queen, to be brought into his presence among the men that have been celebrating for seven days, he wants to parade her beauty in front of all those men. Vashti refuses. This angers the king, and in his anger, he acts rashly, and he divorces Vashti. In the following verses, measures are taken, word is sent out through the empire, so that in every home, man will be the head of his home. But this also leads to the search for a new queen. And young maidens from all across the empire are brought to the capital city as candidates for the king. This leads to the choice of Hadassah or Esther, Hadassah is her Hebrew name, Esther, her Persian name. And we're introduced to her cousin, Mordecai, for Esther is, a, is an orphan. Her mother and her father have somehow been killed or died, and she alone and her cousin, Mordecai, are making it through this world, and Mordecai takes care of Esther as his own daughter. He acts as a father to her. It's at the end of chapter 2 that Mordecai, who is a low-level clerk in the palace, he overhears a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. He brings the word of that plot to Esther, who is now queen, and she brings the news to the king in the name of Mordecai. The assassination plot is foiled. The two assassins are hung. And Mordecai's act of saving the king is recorded in the official state records. In chapter 3, somewhat of a surprise, a man by the name of Haman, is elevated to the highest position in the realm next 
to King Xerxes himself. Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman. This infuriates Haman, and Haman wants to destroy Mordecai. But to do it, he doesn't want to do anything directly to Mordecai. And so he hatches a plan to wipe out Mordecai's people and, of course, Mordecai with them. In the process of bringing this plan to fruition, he rolls the dice. It's a way of uh, finding, so to speak, a favorable time, one that will be favorable to him as well as his plan. The die or lot is called a pur, P-U-R, and that's how we get the name Purim, which is the feast of the Jews that's celebrated to this day to commemorate what has happened and is recorded in the book of Esther. And so it is, we're told the date is set, and Haman goes to the king, and he sells the plan to the king. He talks about it vaguely. He talks about a people who are strange and don't follow all the king's laws. And when the king hears that, of course, he rubber stamps Haman's plan. And then the plan, per the date in the near future, is set. And the information, the edict, is spread across the empire and realm. In chapters 4 and 5, the edict to destroy Mordecai's people, as I said, is spread across the realm. And this, of course, is met with wailing and sadness as if someone has already died. And Mordecai dresses himself in sackcloth and smears himself with ashes and sits at the gate of the king. The news of this this strange event is brought to the queen's attention, and she contacts Mordecai through a mediating servant. And the conversation goes back and forth, but she wants Mordecai to be cared for, but he refuses any help. But in the process, it's here at this point in chapter 4, verse 14, that Mordecai tells Esther that she must speak to the king and save her people. She approaches the king at the risk of her life, but he greets her to her encouragement and shows her great tenderness, even though it was a thing that was unprecedented. And if anyone had done that like she did it, death would have been the result. He wants to know what she requests. Up to half of his kingdom. That's a pretty roomy request that he's ready to receive. But she isn't ready to give that request to the king. She wants only for the king and, Morde and Haman 
to be her special guests at a banquet that she has prepared that very day. And so it is at that banquet, she entertains Xerxes and Haman. After the banquet, in chapter 5 at the end, Haman is just bursting with pride that the queen has invited him to this august and private party with the king. And so at home, he begins to brag about it to his wife and his company. He says that life could not be better except for one thing, that the world had no place for Mordecai. At that, his wife says, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you kill Mordecai? I'm surprised Haman hadn't thought of it already. So he has built a 75-foot gallows at his home. And that night, before the second banquet that she had requested of the king to take place the following day, that night in chapter 6, the king cannot sleep. He's restless. So he asks his servant to bring the state records and have them read to him. I guess that would put you to sleep. So the record is read, and it just so happens that he begins to read about Mordecai and how Mordecai, as it's recorded in the state records, saved the king's life by bringing to the court's attention this plot that had been hatched. And as it is read, the king says to the servant, he says, uh, what did I do to honor Mordecai? And the servant tells him, you didn't do anything. And so the king, it just so happens, at that very moment, the king says, who's in the court that I could ask what I should do for the man that the king wants to honor? And at that very moment, Haman himself, who's come to the court during the night to ask the king to approve his plan to kill Mordecai. He is now asked by the king, if the king wants to honor a man, what is it that you would do to honor such a man? What should be done for the man that the king wants to honor? And Haman thinks, the king wants to honor me. I'm the one that he wants to honor. So Haman begins to tell the king, well, here's what I would do, thinking that the king wants to honor him. Haman proposes that the king should honor such a man by treating him like a king. Give him a royal robe. Lead him around on a horse that the king himself has ridden. Put a king's crown on his head and have the king's highest official do that 
for the man, at the same time leading him around on that horse and crying out in a public way, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. When Xerxes hears this plan, he says, I love it. I want you to do just that for Mordecai. In chapter 7, at Esther's second banquet, Haman, of course, has now been, at least in his own heart, deeply humiliated, having to lead Mordecai around the city, crying out, this is what is done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. At the second banquet, the king again asks the queen, you promised you would tell me, what is it that I can do for you? Up to half of my kingdom. And it is now that Esther begins to pour out her heart, telling the king of the plan that's on the royal calendar to destroy her, her family, and her people. King Xerxes asks, who has done this? And she tells him, it's Haman. Infuriated, the king steps into the garden. He needs to cool down because he's extremely angry. And it just so happens that while he's just outside the official room in the garden, Haman at this point comes to the couch upon which Queen Esther is seated and he throws himself on the couch and begins to beg for his life. But it is, and it just so happens at this moment that the king re-enters the room and sees Haman seemingly throwing himself at the queen. And he cries out at that point, Will he also attempt to accost the queen while I'm still in my house? And then it just so happens that one of the servants steps forward and tells King Xerxes, you know, Haman had a gallows 75 feet high built in his yard for Mordecai. And the king turns and says, hang him on that gallows, and he's led away. And Haman's fall from the second highest position in the realm is complete. On the very gallows that he had erected to hang Mordecai, Haman now hangs. In chapter eight, King Xerxes now elevates Mordecai to the second highest position. And in the final verses of the last couple of chapters, his star continues to rise. And Haman is no more. Mordecai and Esther, in the favor of Xerxes, are able to reverse the edict to destroy the Jewish people. And in the final chapters, chapter 9 and 10, together, they establish the Feast of Purim. Now, in the Sundays ahead, we're going to look at the characters of this book. We'll look at 
Esther, we'll look closer at Mordecai, we'll look at Haman, and we'll even look at Xerxes. But Esther's theme, the theme of this book is reversal. The reverse occurred. The unexpected happened. There was this incredible coincidence. Nearly every event in Esther happens twice. The second is a reversal of the first. These reversals are glaring. They're miraculous. In Esther, God becomes conspicuous by God's absence. Let me say that again. In Esther, God becomes conspicuous by God's absence. You could say, I will tell you, God is the elephant in the room. God, in the book of Esther, is so prominent, in my opinion, we can't even see him. That whole notion of the elephant in the room goes back to 1814 and the publication by Ivan Krylov of a fable called The Inquisitive Man. It tells of a man who goes to a museum. At the museum, the man notices all sorts of tiny things, but fails to notice an elephant and it became proverbial. I believe the unknown author of Esther intentionally chose to spotlight God everywhere by not identifying God anywhere. There is a thing that happens to us when it's thought, God is at work there. We have this tendency to think there is where God is work, but God is not at work here. That doesn't happen in the book of Esther. God is not mentioned anywhere. His name is not written anywhere in the book of Esther. It's the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God in any expressed or explicit way. But there is something to be appreciated, and I hope you'll reflect upon this. Because when we identify God here, then we don't look for him there. But when God is not identified at all, but yet these, states, these reversals keep happening, it causes you to realize God's in the midst of it all. Thursday, around 5 o'clock, I'd been working for a number of hours straight. I was pleased. I had I'd really labored, and I was in awe. It was really a spiritual time. Uh, there was spiritual wonder in my heart as I had been contemplating and writing for this message on Esther. And it was about five, and I was tired, and so I began the process of closing up my work, and my computer crashed. And when I was able to get it up, nothing was there anymore. I couldn't find all that I had invested on paper. It was gone, poof, and I tottered. 
I tottered between a complete meltdown, um, a temper tantrum on the one side, and kind of a crybaby fetal position on the other. But neither of that happened. Actually, what kind of halted it was Esther. The fact that God is not just then or not just there. He's right in the midst of my circumstances. That God could be working in what struck me as a calamity of calamities late in the week. And I began to look for God in the midst. And the rest of the story quickly is that I called Corey and he helped me find my, my document and it was all a happy ending. But it's important to realize that for such a time as this, God is at work and we must work with him. We work with him by admitting him to our thoughts, admitting him into our hearts, admitting him to our conversation, admitting him to our perspective on the world and the little ups and downs, the great triumphs and the great tragedies as we perceive them in our own lives. Admitting God by faith, admitting God to the way we operate in our positions. You see, in Esther, the covenant people were threatened with extinction. What Mordecai and Esther sought to do was focused on and in line with the enduring promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the children of Israel. We are the heirs not only of that covenant, but a new covenant in Jesus Christ. We are the people of God. We are the messianic people that the Old Testament looked to. The First Testament looked to the Second Testament, looked to the Messiah. These are our times in which we are to live for God in a way that demonstrates his presence in our lives, not just there, but not just everywhere, but in me and in you. That's something to ponder and to reflect upon. When we take up the cross in following him, in following Jesus, there is no way that we could not be better focused on the purposes of God in our lives and that's a very straightforward and simple way of immediately identifying maybe not the whole of God's will in my life at this time, but God's will for me in this moment and in this day. The book of Esther reminds us that it is no small thing that God has you and me where he has us. I don't know of any queens in the family of Grace Community. I'd be flattered if there's a queen watching right now. I don't believe anyone watching and anyone in this room or in our church family is at the pinnacle of the empire of a great nation. And yet where we are is important and God wants to be working where we are in our position, in our place. 
And the question becomes, are we squandering the opportunity that God wants us to appreciate to live for him? To make a difference in our kingdom, in our realm. To do something great for God. That's the message of Esther to us. Even when we feel powerless, God rose up Hadassah, Esther, to power. If we're faithful to God in the little things, will he not also call us to greater things? What might God give to you to represent him in if we were faithful in the little things and realized who we are in Christ, we have the spirit of God in us. We are of greater power in Christ than Esther and Mordecai. Even when we feel powerless, even when life takes a turn for the worse, this pandemic is costing lives, but for many of us, it hasn't touched us. What are we doing with the liberty that we have? What are we doing in the midst of our hardships? Even when God seemingly disappears from our view, Esther reminds us God is not distant. He is present. Even when we don't see it, he's working. Even when we don't feel it, he's working. He never stops. He never stops working. He never stops. He never stops working. The question is, will we move with God? Will we work with him in his power? for his purposes, or will we work for ourselves and only the purposes of our own fascination and that the, the purposes that we ourselves devise? I hope we'll rise up and be used of God this week, even today, in ways that we wouldn't otherwise because of Esther. Be reading ahead, be reflecting, May God bless you. So let me give you my virtual hug. I'm going to really give you a strong one here. Fist bump, elbow bump. Of course, most of all, mwah. TJ's going to lead us in a song. TJ. TJ.